Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanokas. Welcome to our latest episode, which is dedicated to a look at what we can expect from the changes coming in the 2021 Formula One season. Compared to the technical rules revolution that was supposed to be on track for 2021 and now coming for 2022 thanks to the coronavirus pandemic, the differences between F1 2020 and the new season are very small. In fact, most of the designs featured in last year's championship must be carried over per the regulations, but there are still some small areas where the teams can freely update and others that can be changed but within a restricted token system. Those changes, which include a move to cut down force levels by 10% with mandated changes to the rear floor design, are the main topics for today's podcast, which is also the cover feature for this week's Autosport magazine. But we'll also be discussing the new driver lineups across the grid, the two rebranded teams, and a look ahead to how the new budget cap and weekend format will work. So joining me to do all of that, first of all, is the author of the feature in this week's Autosport magazine. It's our technical editor, Jake Boxall-Leg. How are you, Jake? Welcome back to the Autosport podcast in 2021. Thank you very much. It's been a while since I've been on, so uh, maybe that's been a, a, a legitimate decision. Um, but it's nice I used to be a bit, used a bit of a loose cannon with the things you say and do, so you know. Yeah, I know. That's why you have Codders on every week after the races. Oh uh, uh, well, he, I mean, he's even more. I mean, there's just there's times I genuinely fear about what he's, ne- he's going to say next. Um, but anyway, we'll we'll see we'll see what uh, what Gemsy comes out with in the 2021 season. But uh, also joining us on this episode is also sports F1 reporter Luke Smith. How are you, Luke? And uh, can I just ask, uh, continuing uh, uh, our introduction on the the previous podcast that came out where we discussed uh, the news that was happening last week, how's your transformation into Sancho Bob coming along? As you mentioned, 
It's getting there. Yeah, no, it was Krusty the Clown. Um, it was more of a sort of, I think it's I mean, the I was close. Kind of I was close. Yeah. They're, they're, they're enemies in the show. They are. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's getting there. And uh, as someone whose hair is gradually sort of thinning and my hairline's going backwards, it's kind of like, a, uh, I don't know whether to shave it off. Will it come back? What's going to happen? I have no idea. So uh, yes, that's my long running issue that I'm sure is going to be the introduction for every single podcast I am on until the end of lockdown. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure I get the right Simpsons character. Uh, so apologies to all <laughs> Simpsons fans out there. Um, and Jake shaking his head. <laughs> well, Jake, coming back to you, this is a this is a regular feature that you do as Autosports technical editor at this time of year, introducing the new F1 season. What's changed? What's uh, what's going to be different for each year? Not not a whole lot changed coming into 2020 from 2019, but there are some differences, despite the fact that the cars by regulation, are basically the same as last year. So how different was it putting this feature together this year? Let me preface this by saying I get one cover feature a year, and this is usually it. I must begin by saying full credit to our 3D artist, Matt Fiveash for the wonderful renders in in this week's magazine. Uh, it does a stunning job every single year, and uh, this year he's had to do quite a lot with not very much changes, uh, as I'll go into. As you say, the cars aren't very different, because obviously we have this token system now, which is strictly regulating what the teams can do with the more structural components of the car. So this is the chassis, survival cell, suspension mountings, uh, crash structures as well. It's just to ensure that teams don't have to expend a lot of money in completely redesigning a chassis. Uh, Having to go through all these crash tests again, um, it's just making sure everything's homologated with with the minimum fuss i guess aerodynamics remains free um but there are some changes to that front in order to reduce the downforce as you say by 10 percent um so i think the most pertinent one is the changes to the floor um as you say there was this 10 percent downforce increase uh decrease sorry um and this was initially because Pirelli was worried that it would have to use the same tyres three years in a row. They did originally want to bring in new tyres for 2020, but the teams vetoed them. Um, And so we were set with a situation where we're on that cusp between having the 18-inch tyres and sticking with the 13s. It's a bit of a difficult position to be in. So Pirelli said, okay, we'll we'll stick with the tyres, but we're just going to have to either the downforce goes down or we're going to have to put the pressures up even more to be able to deal with the the defamation produced by the downforce. But then you have that situation where they're not really designed to take that amount of pressure within the tyre. And you end up with a situation maybe as you did at Silverstone uh, where you have, it, it just gets too much and boom, it pops like uh, balloons at a five-year-old's birthday party. Um, so it's a very a difficult situation to be in. Pirelli then did make changes structurally to the tyres. They shouldn't be too different in overall shape, but within they've changed the the structure to ensure that you know, the belt doesn't deform too much, uh, that we're not going to get these big blowouts. But they are now, as a set, three kilograms heavier. Drivers aren't massive fans of them, as we've been, as, as I'm sure uh, we've discussed before. Um, but there is still this downforce reduction as well. Sorry, I got sidetracked by tyres because they're just so interesting. There is this diagonal triangular cut to the floor. You don't have the slots and cuts on along the side of the floor anymore. And there's also a 50 millimetre reduction to the diffuser fences and also a reduction to the size of the, the little winglets that you can put on the rear brake ducts as well. And all of that's going to produce a reduction in 
downfalls of stated at 10%, but we, we expect the teams to claw that back and bring them back to within a window, which is kind of what was expected uh, anyway. So that's sort of the long and short of, of the, the aero changes there, really. Well, it's interesting. That brings me on to my next question for you, Jake, in terms of you know, you, we are expecting the teams to to claw some of that that lost downforce back because that's exactly what they do. They're very clever people. They've got excellent track record and experience now with these cars. But how exactly are they going to do that? Is there an obvious area where you go, okay, we lose, you know, I mean, this is take, t- talking rather simplistically, of course, but it's like, okay, we lose the downforce in this area of the car, but we can just add it on somewhere else. What what can they do to make up the loss? Okay, so what some of the teams are doing, obviously you have the just general progression in aerodynamics anyway year on year but some of the teams are using what they can with the tokens to open up other areas of the car if you like so one of the things that we know ferrari is doing for sure is changing the rear end geometry and they're gonna go for something that's a little bit more narrow and so they have a lot more of the floor exposed and they can get what's known as the coke bottle effect where the airflow passes around the sort of rear of the car uh, and it concavely bends inwards and open. It just opens up the 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 top of the diffuser so much more to this change in pressure between the two from the inside to the the top side, and that just delivers you so much more downforce because you've got a greater low pressure area within the diffuser. You're able to get a lot more acceleration of airflow and definitely able to generate a lot more downforce. So it's being able to perhaps use the tokens to be able to find that or being able to do what you can with those new rules within the letter of the law that that allows you to try and reclaim some of the the diffuser performance whether it's by using the new floor to create some kind of seal around the diffuser or anything like that teams will be checking and checking again uh, the regulations in order to see what they can do what they can't do and pushing it to the, the letter of the law really and what about at the front of the car? Are the cars, can they look particularly different this year considering what they were designed around last year? I mean, I note the excellent uh, image on the cover feature that you mentioned uh, of Autosport magazine that Matt Fiveash produced for us. You know, the nose looks pretty narrow. That's that's what some of the more successful teams have gone for in recent years. But is that something that could yet be changed uh, within the token system or is it freely allowed? You know, you mentioned that there's a lot of aerodynamic areas that can be updated, but how is it all going to work? Well, should we expect much visual, as uh, Stuart Godling would like to say, much visual difference uh, in the cars this year confusingly enough the token system says that you you can't change the crash structure of the front end unless you spend tokens on it but you can change the aerodynamic fairing so if you have a thin crash structure you could theoretically make the bodywork around that thinner uh, and then you end up with a with a thinner nose and that was something that we noticed as a trend this year and it's because you just simply open out the that passage of airflow to the floor you're able to employ a little cape design that you've seen lots of teams do and that improves the interaction with the front wing which which you also mentioned um teams are going to have to look at that again because how everything interacts with the air further down the car is going to be a lot lot different and so they're going to have to devise this front wing that now works with the new aero rather than the old aero so there will have to be some changes i would imagine Obviously, the front wing purely air advice, so they can change that as long, well within within reason. Um, but yeah, front end, front uh, front of the nose, for example, that might require a token to change. It might not. It's kind of on a team by team basis on that front. Um, there's discussions that you know Alpha Tauri might be spending tokens on it because that historically they've used sort of like a quite a, a wider nose, if you like, and 
Red Bull switched in 2020 to a thinner one and after, you know, might follow suit. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I hope that sort of clears it up a little bit on that on that front, if you like. It certainly does. But what about the what about the power unit, the engine side of things? How is that going to be impacted by sort of the carryover from the old cars? You know, I'm thinking particularly about McLaren changing engines from from Renault to Mercedes. How's that going to impact what they can do with the rest of the car? Because it's it's interesting. It's you know, in the end, in Formula One, it tends to be that most teams eventually converge on being able to do the sort of same design. Or if one you know area proves to be particularly successful, they all rush to copy it. But by the way the rules are written this year not everybody can do exactly the same things at the same time no certainly not uh and there is there is an impact of the change to mercedes uh the the mclaren will have to face first of all the mounting points onto the chassis will be a lot different and so they'll they've had to use tokens to modify the chassis so that it can take the mercedes engine but there'll also be packaging considerations there'll be aero considerations as well even if you just look at the two cars side by side you can see that the the mclaren is packaged differently to the mercedes the racing point and the williams um i think the trend you see with those three teams is how the radiators mounted how the aero is is sort of used to package those uh around it um it is something that the team will, will have to consider um and out of the teams i think it probably is the one that faces the most changes if you like um so it's not really i think with the freezes it's probably not a good year to switch to a new engine supplier but it's not something that they could you know get out of considering you know the deal was signed and we were expecting 2021 to be uh, a lot more different in in form and function but uh it's it is what it is and they have to deal with it and we'll come back to sort of uh talking about that when you know what's going to happen in terms of the work towards the the, the big new designs coming on the horizon uh shortly but luke um just to bring you in here i mean what are we expecting in terms of the impacts of these sort of minor but necessary changes? Is it the sort of thing, particularly I'm thinking about the, the changes to the floor, is it the sort of thing that the the bigger teams can navigate fairly seamlessly? Or, or is there a chance that some of them could genuinely be tripped up by what's happening? And at the same time, bringing in the fact that new tyres are coming in. You know, Jake joked about how, how boring tyres are, and we know that from the, the amount of people that read the stories about tyres on autosport.com. But they're fundamentally crucial to doing well that's why i think lewis hamilton was so vocal in his criticism of the tires because he knows he has an advantage on the current one so why would he want to give that up but yeah is is there genuinely a chance that that things could change in terms of the pecking order by what what's coming for this year there's certainly added obstacles definitely that i think all of the teams will have to get their head around and i think on the on the floor uh dave robson at williams he suggested that actually that's an area where the smaller teams were really lacking compared to the bigger teams so therefore they could sort of make a big jump and actually that would help reduce the the, the gap a little bit um that's something i asked uh, joe d eggington at uh about as well and he said that he thought there was a chance for that, but he wasn't convinced because in the meetings when they were trying to work out basically how to get this downforce cut, at no point did any of the teams go, oh, no, 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 don't touch the floor, leave that alone, because obviously they'd have an advantage. So he said that everyone was on a fairly similar page. So I think that, um, yeah, I think it's maybe not going to be a, a total game changer that, but it is maybe an opportunity for some of those gains to be made by the smaller teams. And uh, with the tyres as well, yeah, I mean, we had a, a couple of tests towards the end of the season and the... Um, 
the the response from the drivers was pretty pretty negative. I mean, they were all fairly emphatic. I think Lewis Hamilton was very outspoken about them. Um, and uh, but all of the teams kind of said, well, actually, no, we just need to make these changes. And they kept saying, don't worry, when we get the the updated cars, then it will actually work better on these tires. And that's not something they'll actually know until they get the uh, first test running in Bahrain underway. So I think there's definitely going to be an element of uh, of doubt and a few question marks over that. And it's it is just another sort of curb or another factor for them to consider but uh, as we we spoke about on uh, yesterday's podcast we do see the top teams they just tend to adapt and adjust no matter what's thrown at them so it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't surprise me too much if it was fairly similar i think going into into this year but um yeah i think the particularly in the midfield fight i think that's that's no bad thing and i think in the midfield is somewhere where even losing a tenth or two due to a lack of understanding on tyres or anything like that, that is a difference between finishing seventh and finishing 13th. So there's a really big swing, I think, that can happen in that midfield pecking order. So I think that's going to be the really fascinating fight, um, particularly with McLaren as well, and just seeing how much it's going to hurt them having to spend those tokens um, purely to fit the new power unit as opposed to actually using it to update the car where they might have preferred to. How tricky is it going to be for the teams to balance working on what little development they can do on the 2021 cars with looking ahead to 2022? It was obviously going to take on much greater significance last year when when the new rules were supposed to come in for the start of this season, but the, the pandemic changed all that. So should we expect some teams to, to write off this year and concentrate all their resources on next year's, next year's big reset? Or is that you know, I'm thinking Braun 2009, Honda, or, or, or would that not be the done thing? When the teams stop developing 2021, 2020, uh, starting 2022, that's going to be the really key thing. Certainly everyone's going to have started on, made a start on 2022 anyway, but you only have certain amount of resources within the team. And the point where you can get most of your resources across the river into 2022, that's going to be the key moment. For a big team like Mercedes, they'll have no problem because they've got a thousand strong workforce. So, you know, they can, you know, go half and half and they've still got the manpower of, uh, you know, one of the smaller teams. But for teams like Williams and Haas that don't have so many people, um, they've got to make a, a key decision of when to drop this development and get a head start. And I suspect that they'll do it very, very early. I suspect a lot of teams will make the the change a lot earlier. The only thing that complicates that is what we then get with regards to a midfield battle because teams aren't going to... If third place is up for grabs again um, and the financial rewards that come with it, uh, the teams aren't going to... You know, they're going to be worried when to make that switch, when to sort of give it up, especially if it's like it was last year as well. Um, It's going to be a sort of really difficult thing to call and it might end up helping some teams to finish off slightly worse off or it might uh hinder them if they do well this year and don't have the manpower to take it into 2022 so it's going to be very very interesting to see well jake in your feature for the magazine you also discuss the driver lineup changes at various squads you've got alpha tauri having yuki sonoda replacing daniel kvyat red bull of course quite late in the day uh, decided to uh, replace alex albon with sergio perez after sebastian vettel had taken perez's former seat at what is now aston martin after he in turn had lost his ferrari drive to carlos Sainz jr who was replaced at mclaren by daniel ricardo whose Renault drive went to the returning Fernando Alonso. And of course, there's the all-new lineup at Haas, which isn't linked to all the rest of them, as all the rest of them are sort of interlined. Um, Luke, we'll come to you first. Which of those team lineup changes, and I'm not getting into the Mercedes thing that remains unresolved at the time of uh, recording the podcast for Lewis Hamilton's contract situation. We don't expect that to change, to be honest. But um, yeah, which of those lineup changes interests you most and why? 
Ooh. Well, I'm going to buy myself some time and firstly praise that rattling off the domino effects you did there, Alex. That was very, very good. Um, I, I, I'm i actually really excited by what we're going to see at Aston Martin. I think Sebastian Vettel going there. I think that it's going to be a decisive move, I think, for his, not just sort of the, the late stages of his F1 career, but I think for his whole legacy in F1 and how he is actually remembered because obviously he had so much success with, with Red Bull after smashing onto the scene in the late 2000s and really sort of being one of the, the rising stars. And then with Ferrari, he has never quite captured the kind of success that I think most thought he would get with them and obviously was um, over overhauled at Ferrari by Charles Leclerc, who quickly became the star that they wanted to build that team around, uh, to the point where he was jettisoned very quickly before last season had even started to make way for Carlos Sainz Jr. So I think that him landing at Aston Martin, I think that's, it's just a very, it was a big statement by Lawrence Stroll to get in a four-time world champion and kind of show that this is what Aston Martin is about. We mean business, we want world champions, we want race winners. Um, you would argue, I think, and I think there's a very good argument for it, that based off the back end of last season, especially, maybe they got rid of the wrong driver. Maybe that Sergio Perez should have kept his seat alongside Lance Stroll instead of bringing Vettel in because it's uh, it, he was performing so so well and obviously is now at Red Bull. So I think that I, I just think it's gonna be really interesting with Vettel. I think he's got another chance. We know last year's Ferrari didn't suit him and work well for him, but now he's got to go into this Aston Martin team and basically he's got to perform. He's got to from day one be leading that team and prove why they've signed him, why they want a four-time world champion in that team. Because if his form is anything like last year, I think that he's going to be in big trouble. I think that it's going to lead to a lot of sort of revisionism about how we look on Vettel among the F1 greats even. And um, I think also for the team as a whole, I mean, Alex, you did an excellent feature talking about Lance Stroll and how he really does need to step up so that we have a balanced lineup at um at Aston Martin, that both drivers are scoring lots of points and fighting up the order, and I think that is true. I think that he's got a, he's got a big point to make as well. But the way that Lawrence Stroll is going about his business is hugely impressive, and I'm really excited by what that team can do. I'm just interested to see if they've got the two right drivers to actually pull off his ambitions. Indeed, yeah. The the, the inspiration behind that column was that the fact that they had the joint largest gap between drivers in terms of their championship position within the teams. I think it was seven places between uh, between Perez and Stroll. Uh, they were, it was joint with Renault, actually, which uh, between uh, Daniel Ricciardo and Esteban Ocon, which showed you uh, the difference there. Um, but Jake, I hope you had your thinking cap on. I know you're a big cap fan, as our editor, Kevin Turner. Oh, we found one of your hats in Ram the office, actually, Jake. Um, Did you? It called, yeah, it was, called, it was like a little bowler hat or something. And so I was like, oh, this is JBL's terrible cap. Oh, uh, this is, that was my... Um, part of my oh god was it my film noir costume for uh the five-part series on the teams of 2010 that didn't make it now available on youtube um i didn't wear the hat it was on a it was on a hat stand well i didn't know we had a costume department <laughs> uh i have some yeah, you, you need to you need to ask jess for costumes she does she deals with the costumes fair enough um but uh, but anyway i hope uh, i hope you, you you had an idea of uh, of your answer to the same question which are which of those team lineup changes has really piqued your interest ahead of the start of 2021 season uh there are two first of all let me begin by saying i'm very very excited to see how yuki Tsunoda does at alpha towery for those who've been following him in the junior series first of all and i don't want to denigrate the team but Genza is never a great F3 team. It's usually, it is, it's had some good years in the past, but nowadays it's sort of that team that's also there. Um, and in 2019, he did a phenomenal job. It took a few 
uh, rounds to, for him to get used to racing in Europe and, and racing an, F, uh, an F3 car. But once he cracked it, he was amazing. Um, and he fully earned his step up to F2. And off the bat, he was brilliant. He was brilliantly quick, showed that he has the right tire management skills to to be able to, be able to hack it at a higher level. Um, and if he didn't make such a mess of the, the first Bahrain round qualifying, um, then he genuinely would have pushed Mick Schumacher and Callum Eilert for the title a little bit harder, I think, going into that final round. So I'm really excited to see how he does. I think he'll breathe a little bit of new life into into the team, give Gasly a little bit of a run for his money. Um, Daniel Kvyat, he did a good job towards the end of the season, but he's a very sort of safe option. And I think sinodo has got that spark about him that uh, will really stand him in good stead, I think. So I'm really excited to see how he does. But I'm also interested to see how McLaren does now with, with Daniel Ricciardo on board. Um, I think his signing, he's obviously rated very, very highly, but I don't think people know how, quite how good he is. Um, and this is really a chance for him to lead a team that's really upwardly mobile at the moment. Not that Renault wasn't, but he seemed to get drawn into this sort of infighting within the team. McLaren, everybody's pushing the same way and he should be able to A, build up a good rapport with Norris. Uh, we were, we've already seen that before. Having Norris and Science on the same wavelength worked wonders for the team and this is only going to continue, but he's going to have such a good chance to to lead that team and with Mercedes engines as well, it's looking, the future's bright, the future's orange. Very good. Oh, that's a, that's a retro reference. I enjoyed that. Um, I've also got two picks for that question. I'm very, very intrigued to see how science gets on at Ferrari alongside Charles Leclerc. Of course, we rate very, very highly. I think it's be a difficult season for, for all involved because of the sort of Ferrari rebuilding process and trying to bounce back after the engine deficit uh, from last year. But yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated because I, I really rate science. I think he did an excellent job last year. I think he's done fantastically in Formula One in not always the easiest uh, of scenarios, but it's a whole different game going to Ferrari. But also at the same time, I'm really intrigued at what happens to Alpine with Fernando Alonso coming alongside uh, Esteban Ocon because there's a big danger here for Ocon. Fernando Alonso and Stoffel van Dorn at McLaren ultimately did for van Dorn's career. You know, like it, it's, there's a big warning sign here for Ocon uh, and also for Alonso and his own reputation. You know, the, the, he has put himself in the firing line uh, going up against the new young teammates. So it'd be really interesting to see how the two of those two guys uh, get on and, and the results they bring to Alpine. And bringing, you know, let, let, let's stay on the same topic there because Jake, you mentioned in your feature that there are a lot more A-teams this year. I don't know, were you a fan of the TV show? I've, I make a lot of references to it. I've, I've made a lot of references to it in columns but I've not watched it a whole lot. So a little bit before yeah. our time, I'll be honest. Yeah, a little bit. Us. Even for me, as I'm the ancient one on this podcast, as you regularly remind me. Um, but uh, let, let's let's come on to the rebranded teams. Obviously, Racing Point uh, becomes Aston Martin and Renault changes its name to Alpine. So Luke, do we think that's going to, in terms of like the name changes, is that going to have much impact, much different really at, at those teams? I think in terms of image for Aston Martin, yes. I think that, as I said about sort of Lawrence Stroll and the, the ambitions he's got for that team, I mean, he he always wanted it attached to some kind of brand. Racing Point was always a fairly 
inoffensive and very much a holding name for that team. And he looked at some older um, sort of uh, heritage names such as uh, Brabham, uh, March, Lola, the idea of bringing that name back to F1 somehow. And uh, in the end, it, it never came off. So it remained as racing point for a little while longer. But then obviously the deal to buy into Aston Martin's road car company allowed him to get the Aston Martin name for the F1 side as well. So I think that ultimately the on-track fortunes, it's not going to change a, a ton, I don't think, for Aston Martin in particular. But I think in terms of the sort of the, the mission that they are on, I think it's like this is a big year for them. I think this year that they really mean business, that they're sort of growing up a little bit more as well. And I just think it's going to be really cool to see what that kind of what that does for the whole team, having that mentality of, OK, we are now representing such a world famous car brand that has had so much success in motorsport, not so much in F1 and a chance to kind of build that legacy and build that up. Um, on the Alpine side, I think that, and again, I said this on podcast a couple of days ago, but it is very much sort of a, a building year for uh, that team. Renault have decided to rebrand it as Alpine as part of their a sort of ongoing uh, Renaultion that's going on and the, the changes they are making and trying to sort of promote Alpine as being their performance brand moving forward, which is which is going to be interesting. Um, and I think that really the bigger changes there, I think are more what's going on behind the scenes with uh, Davide Brivio coming in from Suzuki Most GP. Um, Martian Bukowski is expected to take over as team principal. And I think that is, that's probably going to be more significant, but it's kind of a, uh, it's going to be interesting. I think those sort of, yeah, new names, a bit of a new sort of mentality for both teams. But I think Aston Martin is probably the one where it would have a bigger change for this year. Uh, JBL, just quickly, as Autosports pun uh, in chief, um, what do you, how do you rate the Renault-Lucian pun? Is that a good one, a bad one? How did I know you were going to ask me this? I'll be honest with you. I find it so refreshing that a multinational milli, uh, billion dollar corporation has aligned itself with such a heinous pun i really like it <laughs> wow i thought you were going to be upset that i'd pigeonholed you and maybe you'd, you'd bring up a copy of the barchester chronicles or something to uh, <laughs> i hope everyone gets that reference but anyway um sorry I, I got totally sidetracked but i did have a genuine question to ask you about alpine uh, jake which is that in terms of this sort of rebranding ex- uh, exercise and actually, actually applies to aston martin as well maybe, maybe even more to aston martin with what they're doing, with aligning themselves with these sports car manufacturers, okay, Alpine is is is, is not is much less well known, um, much smaller than, than Aston Martin. Is there a chance that it will have any impacts on the technical side of things for the Formula One teams, or should we treat this more as marketing exercises along what Alfa Romeo is doing with Sauber? I think I'd lean towards marketing exercises. We've seen some kind of overlap in technology with Renault and its Infinity brand has used uh, a Renault grade F1 um, MGU-H system in a certain, I can't remember which Infinity car it is, I think Infinity Black, I think it's called. Um, they've used it in there, but there's not been a whole lot of crossover and I don't really see that changing. I think they're very much reverting to the win on Sunday, buy on Monday mentality and they're really trying to reposition Alpine as this sports car brand as well um and they're aligning all of their racing activities with it the only it doesn't seem to be so much of a case for aston martin because it seems to be we're using f1 as our price point uh of you know bringing people to buy our cars and this is our marketing tool um but alpine has gone for this more scattergun approach across lots of different other forms of motorsport and um you sort of worry if it's losing a little bit of focus because you know they've got this uh ever-growing display and work um 
they've rebadged the Formula Renault Euro Cup Championship and merged it with Formula Regional European Championship, which was a horrible name. And they've given it the Alpine branding. Uh, we expect Alpine to come back in other forms of racing as well. And you sort of, yeah, worry that they'll get a little bit sidetracked. And I don't see that being the case with Aston Martin so much. Indeed. Well, Jake, as we as we sort of go through your feature, although I have to say, I'm afraid my copy of Autosport magazine this week uh, still hasn't arrived. We're recording a Friday the day after it comes out in the shops, as, uh, as I'll obviously give you in the trail at the end. Although, Luke, your cover feature from uh, January the 7th did arrive today, which uh, oh. obviously major disruption to the post pandemic. It is a little bit late, but you know, like, we, well, I read the Digimag uh, online, as I, as I urge everybody to, if uh, unfortunately the, uh, the current situation with the pandemic has uh, messed up your post, as it has uh, for me here. Not that I'm complaining, it's very much first world problems, it's all good. Um, we're going through your feature online, Jake. Um, we're coming towards the end of it now. Um, and at the end, you, we discuss, you know, the, the budget cap, massive thing in Formula One. And obviously that's going to, it's going to have an impact because it's coming from January the 1st. So Luke, you know, when it, with that coming in $145 million uh, as a limit with certain exemptions, just how big a moment is this for Formula One? Because it's been talked about for so long, never really agreed and there is an argument to saying it took a pandemic to make the team sort of see sense and come to come to a coalition on that yeah completely i mean this is such a huge moment for f1 and such a big game changer and i think that as much as we talk about sort of regulation changes as being the catalyst for a shake-up of the competitive order i think this budget cap is going to be bigger than any of that i think that for the long-term future it's going to make for a much more competitive f1 but also much more sustainable F1 as well, because the spending has been pretty pretty crazy through the years. The disparity between the haves and the have-nots has been absolutely massive. And ultimately, even when they came to discuss the budget cap initially, the initial bar was set at 175 million. And even that was seen as too high by many of the teams. And it really did, as you say, take the pandemic to actually make people go, okay, even that is way too much. And um, Franz Tost, I spoke to him at the end of the season, he said that it opened the eyes of all the teams to go, actually this wouldn't have been possible without um without the pandemic like we had to get it even lower but he also said that had it not been had a budget cap not already been discussed and that it was just free spending and whatever and the pandemic happened then f1 would have had so much work to do to actually work out okay what's our future going to look like how are we going to make it sustainable moving forward and it's um so yeah so it is absolutely massive and i think that it's going to be really interesting to see how all the teams get on in this sort of new world uh, through this year and all of the midfield teams have said, look, don't expect us to be immediately fighting with the bigger ones just because we can spend as much as them now because ultimately the bigger teams have more resources, they've got better facilities, they've got everything in place already. And I think that's going to mean that it'll take a few years really for the sort of it to drip through and for the uh, the field to converge a little bit more. But nevertheless, I think it's, it's massive for F1. It's really exciting. And uh, yeah, it's just another sort of headache for all of the teams to warm up. It's a headache for the big teams. For the smaller teams, it's pretty much business as usual. So I think it's going to be, uh, yeah, very interesting to see how the larger teams get on trying to adjust to this new world they're working in. Yeah, you, you hit on a good point there, Luke, in the ter- in terms that like speaking to Williams, I spoke to Simon Roberts and Dave Robson at the end of last year, and, and they were saying, you know, well, we're already within the limit. So it's not going to affect us all that much in terms of like, there's going to be no painful, um, you know, redundancies or having or having to downsize uh, staffing numbers, which is what unfortunately will ha- I'm sure happen a little bit at, at the bigger teams. But at the same time, they've they've been setting up totally alternate divisions to make sure that they don't have to to, to, to make people run. You look at Mercedes, what they're doing with sort of their uh, effectively an applied sciences division. Red Bull already had that with their technology thing. Ferrari are, are, are moving some of their F1 staff out to Haas and just, you know, just just uh, moving it around, which is interesting to see how in the long run that will, will it, 
just naturally le- uh, level the playing field between the teams. But Jake, how can, will these new financial rules, how might that work in terms of changing technical development across the grid? Because it's not just a limit on what can be spent. It goes hand in hand with new restrictions on wind tunnel and that CFD simulation. It's, it's actually a handicap in that the smaller teams will be able to use those tools more than the more successful teams based on previous year's championship. So will that make a difference although the pandemic has been horrendous for everyone it's kind of almost good fortune that this new budget cap has come in which will come in hand in hand with the 2022 regulations because what i think a lot of people worried about was that teams would sort of conform to this soft budget cap for for 2021 because the development would have been done over 2020 it would have been unlimited. So you still would have had the big teams with the big advantage in in that regard. And so it would have taken a few more years for the smaller teams to catch up with regards to the the wind tunnel time as well. It is going to have an effect. Um, and I think season on season, you will see a lot more variation in results because the bigger teams don't have as much wind tunnel time. And so a team that might have got to second or third by being at the bottom might then slide down a bit. It all depends on how you can capitalise on what success you have and how you can build on it. So you've got to really box clever with the wind tunnel time that you have available. I don't know how much it sort of it works in comparison to what the F1 teams currently use now, but you've got to be a lot more efficient with the resources you have. Um, so it's certainly going to affect development. I think development will end up being pretty restricted anyway from 2022 onwards with new regulations. So it, it, it sort of balances it out a little bit, but it's certainly going to have an effect. I think that we'll see definitely a lot more variation with, in that regard. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the actual effect of how the budget cap will work. Indeed, yeah, it'll be, yeah, be really interesting to see how that plays out. But uh, the last change I wanted us to go through on this podcast, the slight change to the weekend format, obviously it's still going to be a three-day event for Formula 1 races this year, but Friday practice has basically been limited. Both uh, the sessions on Friday will now be an hour, down from 90 minutes. Um, I've got a fairly absolute opinion on what impact uh, this will have in terms of the race results on a Sunday. Would you like to share it now? I mean, I, it won't have any effect whatsoever. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the faster, bigger teams will, will still win. We saw that at the, the Eiffel Grand Prix, you know, they had no practice running on a Friday, only a, a 60 minute session and, and Mercedes was still at the front. It's just, it's just not going to have, you know, I, I don't buy this, get rid of practice and it will suddenly randomize the order. It's, you need a much, much more wide ranging set of changes, which are coming, but this in, in itself won't do anything. But Luke, I mean, it comes hand in hand with like, there's no change in terms of the amount of tires that the teams can run. So effectively what's likely to happen is we'll get the same amount of running condensed into a shorter period. So that's probably good for the fans that would be watching the Friday practice sessions, right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, because it removes all this dead time where you'd kind of have everyone go out and do their their first runs or whatever and then have their, their set of tyres that they'd be able to use before giving back. And then just have this lull sort of around the 40-minute mark where they're all sort of waiting for a little, little bit more time to pass before they can go out and actually use more, more sets of tyres. And it's, yeah, practice at times, particularly on some of the shorter circuits, it can be really, really dull. And it's, um, yeah, as much as we sort of, we love we love this sport, we do fanfare it, practice is a part where it's kind of like, and there's the argument of, well, you wouldn't go and watch a, a football team doing training or something like that. And I think while F1 is a little bit different in that regard, because it is still exciting to watch practice, particularly trackside, you get the sort of uh, all the sensory experience is really, really nice. 
90 minutes down to 60, it's not going to make a jot of difference. Like, it's just a good thing, I think, just to make sure we don't have this dead time. We don't have sort of lots of TV filler of the, the cameraman sort of panning to the back of the garage and coming up with random stats of where this driver finished at the 19... 19- 94 German Grand Prix or whatever. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's going to be nothing like that. So that's good. Um, yeah, so good step by F1. Indeed. Well, assuming that the sort of the, especially the FP2 session does end up with a similar sort of progression in terms of you get the uh, initial running, then you get the low fuel running, then you get the higher fuel running. Uh, that shouldn't have any impact on my GTs as Grand Prix editor on a Friday night. I'll still be uh, producing that regular feature for autosport.com. Plus, and finish means- half an hour earlier as well. I hope, well, I hope it does. This is what I'm getting to. Jake, do you, are you looking forward to um, not having to check all my work for, for terrible errors at an earlier time this year? I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm sure that if they, if you're from a different motorsport website that has your own live feed service, as we do on Autosport, trying to do FP2 and come up with things to write about is the most painful experience ever. FP2 is boring. I don't like FP1, but you're sort of like, you get to see different drivers. Sometimes you get to see Roy Nassani do a lap in a Williams or two. You know, it's a little bit more exciting than FP2 where, as Luke said, they go out for a bit and then they're sat in the garage doing pretty much nothing. And you're like, this is this is great. Um, in my opinion, uh, I wouldn't be happy until they deleted FP1 and FP2 entirely, moved FP3 to a Friday and just have one hour-long practice session. That would be my ideal world. But funnily enough, people like to watch practice sessions. And so it's better than what we, than, than full 90-minute session. But as a typical F1 fan, I'm still not happy. On that note, Jake, thank you very much for the positivity. Um, we'll end it there. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit stunned by that. But uh, there we go. Now I'm joking. Thank you very much. Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast today. And of course, everybody, thank you for listening along. Uh, now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in the as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There will be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis, and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 
The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits, perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.